So good to have you here in the house. So good to have you online. And uh, if you could have any superpower, what would it be? Um, I can tell you easily for me, if I could have a superpower, it'd be the ability to fly. I mean, bing, bang, I just want to fly. I think my second choice would be the ability to see the future. But as I think about that, I think I'd only want to see the good things about the future. (laughs) I'm not sure I'd want to know everything about the future because that would be quite uh, daunting, quite waiting. But you know, kind of the key events, the the key outcomes of things that are ahead. Uh, And by the way, if we knew what those events were, boy, that, that would sure change how I go about thinking and living today. Or would it? Or really would it? Because here's the interesting thing about it all is God actually has told us some key outcomes and key events that are uh, in the future. And uh, how does that impact us? How does that impact us? Well, in recent weeks, what we've been doing is, on the whole, we're doing a series of growing forward. And uh, what does it look like to grow and change in Christ? But we're spending some months laying some foundations here. And we've been looking back. And in that looking back, we saw we were created by God and placed by God. And then Genesis 3, we were broken by choice. But be it out of that, Psalm 139, that even out of our brokenness, we are still known and pursued by God. How, how wonderful is that? How wonderful is that? And so looking back and kind of understanding that, and now we're taking a few Sundays to, to look ahead. And in that looking ahead, we're really uh, looking at three things. The uh, first one is last Sunday, kind of a stark reality, oftentimes something we, we just avoid having the conversation about, but a time to die. There is a time to die. Unless the Lord returns, there's a time to die uh, for everyone. In fact, uh, uh, looking at the stats, everyone before in 1800s are dead. They're all dead. And, uh, and that just keeps moving along. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, uh, we kind of grounded it there. For everything there is a season, a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die. And us understanding that just is like, that, that's coming. Let's not avoid it. Let, let's see it. And, and it should have an impact on what we do today. Today is going to be a time to stand. We're going further into the future, and we're going to go to Revelation 19 and 20, and we're going to take a look at what it says there, a time to stand and, um, at the great white throne judgment. And, and then next Sunday, we're going to do um, a, a time to reign, um, Revelation 21 and 22. Uh, for those who are in Christ, there's going to be a time for reigning. How cool is that? By the way, after that will be Palm Sunday. Uh, We're going to be taking the cross to heart, and then after that is Easter Sunday. We're going to be taking the resurrection to heart. Those, uh, I love the flow of this. We're looking back, we're looking forward, and then we're going to take some moment in in the cross and the resurrection before we get into the pragmatics of what it looks like to grow and change in Christ and for Christ. So today's the time to stand. Uh, Would you open your copy of God's Word to Revelation 19, if you haven't already? Revelation 19. Uh, there are four key events in these two chapters, and how I'm approaching this is uh, the first three lead up to the fourth. Um, if today, I, I, this is big picture, big, 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 everybody say big picture. This is big picture today because actually uh, in 2015, preached through Revelation, and what we're talking about on this one Sunday, uh, I did in four. And so if you want more time with it, you can go back uh, to those. But a big picture is the word for today, and we're following that through. We're going to take a look here first at Revelation 19, verses 1 through 10. I'm calling this the hallelujah response. 
Um, before I read it, three things about uh, these verses here. One is, uh, it's interesting that four times the word hallelujah is in these first 10 verses. And you may think, oh, okay, whatever. The, the interesting fact about it, it's the only time in all of the New Testament that the word hallelujah is used. And it's used here four times in these 10 verses. Uh, hallelujah, what does it mean? Hallel, it, it means praise. Uh, Yah, it's the first letter of Yahweh's name. It means praise Yahweh when we say it. So we're in a football game and it's a hallelujah. It's like praise Yahweh. Okay. Uh, uh, when we're talking about it, that's the idea of it. it. This is a girding itself in the God of all things. Uh, this is more than a football game, right? More than a football game here. Uh, praise Yahweh. Then lastly, these 10 verses, these 10 verses are the foundation verses, kind of the, the impetus for uh, George Frederick Handel in 1741 of the writing of the Messiah, uh, which includes the Hallelujah Chorus. And some of the words of the Hallelujah Chorus say this, for the Lord God reigneth. The kingdom of his world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. And in this song, and he shall reign forever and ever. King of kings, Lord of lords, hallelujah. Uh, we're going to see why this, these first 10 verses inspired him. Let, let's, let's read them here. You follow along as I read aloud after this. By the way, that means there were things that are preceding it. You've got chapter 18, the fall of Babylon, Revelation. You've got all these other things that are taking place in Revelation. After this, I heard, he, he heard, he didn't touch any of this. Uh, I say this because of how the rest of the chapters flow. After this, I heard, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute, talked about earlier in Revelation, who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And once more they cried out, hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Verse four, and the 24 elders and the four living creatures, which actually we met earlier in the book of Revelation, if you were reading through that, uh, fell down there around the throne, worshiped God who is seated on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, praise our God, all you servants, you who fear him, small and great. Verse six, and then I heard, it seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted for her, for her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. 
And he said to me, these are the words, uh, true words of God. And then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. Uh, I am a fellow servant and you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So many things we could talk about here, but we're in big picture of what's ahead and what do we have here? We begin in the chapter with this great multitude. There's a great multitude and they're loud and they are voices loud. It's not noise loud, it's voices. Voices means there are words and words mean they have meaning and meaning means they are coming from somewhere of understanding. And they are in heaven and they are celebrating. It's the idea in the language of presently, actively proclaiming hallelujah declarations, why? Why are they doing this at this moment? Answer, because you see in verse two, it, it's oriented for his judgments are true and, and just. That's interesting. Of all the things that could be picked out about our God, uh, this is the item here. It's giving you a sense of what's taking place. It's giving you a sense of what's about to come on the table of things. And they're giving praise that his judgments uh, are like our judgments. His judgments are true and just and perfect. And he has judged the great pro prostitute who corrupted the earth and he has avenged. Hey, this is so cool because the Lord will judge corruption justly. Hey, if, if, if you have experienced, which you and I have, when we have experienced things of corruption, of wickedness, of evil, when our world experiences those kinds of things, know this friend, God is gonna deal with them all. Know that. Maybe in your life, there are some horrific things that have taken place in your life and it is messing with your head. Allow me to throw out this one piece of hope. God is going to deal with it. Let him. Because you and I, we don't judge justly and rightly. We judge the way we want to. God will do it perfectly. And there is hope in this. Our God will judge it rightly. Oh, by the way, it goes beyond that because it even says that he will avenge corruption. Oh, there's a superpower. God is the avenger. And not only will God make wrong right, God will avenge it. He will not only judge it, he will make it right. How can anyone do that? God can. And he will, friend, he will. Hallelujah. By the way, are you beginning to see why Handel grabbed a hold of this text and made like a really long song out of it? Yeah. By the way, note verses seven and eight. I'm calling him the lion and the lamb, takes his bride, the lion and the lamb. Earlier in the whole book of Revelation, going through it, Jesus Christ is the lamb. By the way, the lamb is the lion, the lion is the lamb. And we are seeing now here where the lamb, who is the lion, we are going to be seeing the lion roaring. And here the lion lamb takes his bride. Oh, this is so good. This, this is, the Lord is going to take his bride. Oh, hear me on this. Uh, first century Jewish weddings have some different aspects to them that, that just uh, give a word on all of this. Uh, three phases in a uh, first century Jewish wedding. 
Phase number one, the betrothal, similar to our engagement, but it had this unique aspect to it of to where a man and a woman would become betrothed and they were legally bound together as husband and wife. Listen, they became, hear, hear me on this, see the relationship with God and his people. They became legally bound together through a commitment of word. And in that, they could not be separated. They were viewed as together, although they were not living together. They are viewed as together. And uh, the bride's task was to make her wedding dress, was to prepare herself for presentation. Can I say growing and changing in Christ? preparing herself for present the groom's task get a load of this the groom's task in first century jewish weddings the groom's task was to prepare a place for them to live huh oh and by the way p.s normally that place that the groom was preparing for them to live when they would be joined together was generally attached to the parents house might we say it this way is attached to the father's house how do you see this? Oh, I just love this stuff. The bride is preparing herself. The groom is preparing a place. And then you come to the ceremony phase two, the presentation of the bride. And as the ceremony draws near, the, the bride would get herself ready along with her bridesmaids. And while the bride and her bridesmaids knew that the, de- the time of the ceremony was drawing near, hear me on this, they would not know the exact hour that the groom would arrive. Ladies, you're like, that ain't working for me, <laughs> right? Literally, I know it's this day. He may come with his party at 11 a.m. or 1 p.m. or 3 p.m. or 5 p.m. It's the groom's choice as to when he comes to pick up his bride. And she knows that. Oh, the word right? And at the time of his choosing, he would go to the house, accompanied with his friends and the musicians and the singers, and he would arrive and he would claim her for himself. And then he would take the bride and her bridesmaids with her to her parents' home, making a great procession to the father's house, the place where he had been preparing for them to live. Phase three, then comes the marriage supper. Following the betrothal, after the presentation and the ceremony, the marriage supper would begin, and then afterward, the groom and bride would live together forever. Hallelujah! Seriously, guys, you aren't fired up enough about this like I am. You see what's happening here. When it talks about this, and the marriage of the lamb has come, and his bride, uh, verse 7, has made herself ready and was granted her to clothe herself with fine linens and pure uh, brightness. Uh, Come, Lord. Like, today's a great day. I don't even have to know the final four finish. God is good. And give me some grace here when I say it this way. Invitation for this event the marriage supper of the lamb. Invitations have been sent out to everybody. Everybody. Invitations are out, and that means everybody has the opportunity to respond to the invitation. Why wouldn't anyone want to be at this? 
I'll throw out some reasons. Too busy? Just not interested? Got other priorities? Oh, here's one. Maybe you think it's junk mail. Or maybe you don't think, or that person doesn't feel unworthy, or they feel unworthy to be able to be a part of it. Or maybe I just don't have the right clothing for the event. All these kinds of things. And yet, friends, 1 John 5, 11 through 13 in the DPV version, that's Doug's paraphrase version, says this. And this is the testimony that God has given eternal life, that God has sent out his invitations for eternal life. And the, this eternal life is in his son, the lamb. Whoever has the lamb will be the invited ones who have RSVP'd to the marriage supper of the lamb. And whoever does not have the lamb will not be at the marriage supper of the lamb. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God, who have RSVP and in the name of the lamb, that you may know that you have a seat at the marriage supper of the lamb. Do you know? Do you? You have an invitation. Oh, it's not a question of it got lost in the mail. The question is, is what are you doing with it? Has there been a time where you've driven the stake in the ground and received Christ as your savior? And by the way, it's not just about a prayer, it's about a life. You see, it's about a wedding. It's no longer living single. That's not a marriage. It's living in a whole new way. Oh, I could just sit on that. The hallelujah, hallelujah response, verses 11 through 16. We go to the war and the warrior. The groom comes. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. Giddy up. And the one seated on it was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war, and his eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and his name is written that, and he has a name written that no one but himself knows. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God, and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses, giddy up, up, up. And from his mouth came a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty and on his robe and on his thigh is the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Verse 17, and then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come, come gather for the great supper. This is a different kind of a supper because listen, verse 18, to eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and the riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, it was over before it started. And with it, the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its images, uh, image, uh, these two were thrown in alive to the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds gorged on their flesh and oh my. John sees the rider this rider has titles, faithful and true. Another one is the unknown name, 
fascinates me. And, and, and you read in commentaries and the amount of pages that are spent talking about trying to figure out what this name is. Dudes, it's an unknown name to only the writer. Save the paper, just say it's unknown. I don't know, pet peeved. The unknown name. The word of God is a title. Oh, John 1 fits there. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That, that puts a perspective on it. There are attributes of this rider. The rider rides on a white horse. His eyes are like flames of fire, judgment. The rider's head, he has many diadems on them. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Palm Sunday and the cross. And the armies of heaven follow the rider. And from the rider's mouth comes a sharp sword. And see his actions. This rider comes to judge. He's coming to judge. He's coming to make war. He's coming to strike down nations and he will rule and he will try tread the winepress of fury. And interesting. In the Old Testament, the Messiah is, is seen as the sweet promised hope. You come to the New Testament. Jesus is the sweet manger child. He, he is the sweet teacher and healer. He is the sweet lamb who entered on a donkey. He is the sweet sacrifice on this cross. He is the sweet victor over the grave. But Fred, you come to Revelation 19 and you meet the roaring lion. Yeah. Hey, the lamb is the lion. The sweet one who came, came as the lamb. Understand, he's now coming as the lion and he's roaring. And why is he roaring? Because it's time to put an end to corruption. It's time. This is it. And this is ahead. And this is no Lord of the Rings fantasy. This is coming. Verses 17 through 21, we see these gatherings. There's four of them. The birds are called to gather for a great supper. The beasts and the kings of the earth gather to make war against the rider and his army. Good luck with that, boys. And then verse 20, the rider gathers and captures the beast and the false prophet, and both are thrown into the lake of fire that burns. And verse 21, the gathered kings of earth and their armies who are slain by the writer remain unburied. By the way, that was the ultimate humiliation in the ancient world. And it is there that the gathered birds eat it all up. And I'm just going to say, I don't think this is figurative at all. And you may say, I disagree with you, Doug. That's okay. You, you can do that. But it's not about what I say. It's about what God's word says. And do you want to go toe-to-toe -to -toe there? Because that's what you are doing when it goes there. And I'm just going to lovingly say, you're not going to win. You're not going to win. This is what's ahead and I am so serious about it because it is serious, serious stuff. Hallelujah response. The war and the warrior. And then we come into Revelation 20 in the first 10 verses and the thousand years. 
These verses are really a bedrock of debate upon how are they understood, how are they applied? Is it amillennialism, postmillennialism, premillennialism? Amill views this, these verses just in big picture you know, as a figurative thousand years that's happening during this present church age that will, uh, between Christ's death and the second coming, and the church is the fulfillment of Israel. You have postmill that sees a figurative thousand years that things gradually get better through the church's influence and through the work of Christ. And, and then uh, Christ returns. You have premillennialism. Things get worse and worse. You have the tribulation, Christ's second coming, and then a thousand year, literal thousand year reign. If you're wondering, I'm a pre-mill guy. If you differ on me, uh, that's okay. I love you. This is not a changer in the gospel, but I look forward to the day when I get to go, I was right. <laughs> Just having some fun. Everybody chill out on all that. Why do I bring all that up? I brought all that up on purpose. I brought all of that up on purpose because so often that's where this converse text goes to a conversation. What position are you? Why are you that? And then people, God's people get all mad at each other about it. And it's really a shame because this isn't about so much a timeline first and foremost. This is about a person. This is about a Someone. This is about the fact of the Lord Jesus Christ, the resurrected, glorified, magnified Jesus Christ. Hey, friends, we need to get a better revelation view of who Jesus is and get over the movie view. That was in the first coming. The death took place. The resurrection took place. And this is closer to who Christ is today as the reigning one and the King of kings and Lord of lords. And let me read verses 1 through 10. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, the abyss, and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for how long? For a short season, a little while. And then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. And they came to life, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, uh, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison, verse 8, and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophets were. And they were tormented how much? Hallelujah. We met Satan uh, in our looking back in Genesis chapter 3 where he slithers his way in. And now he's dealt with. It's important to know that. It's important to know what happened and it's important to know what will happen. 
Because, friend, we live in the in-between. We live in the in-between of it all. And looking ahead, we see here in verses 2 to 3, Satan is seized. He's bound for a thousand years, whatever your viewpoint is on all of that. He's shut and sealed in the pit. Verse 7, Satan is released. He's released, verse 3, for a little while. But then verse 10, Satan is thrown into the lake of fire. Boom! Hallelujah! All of this wickedness that's going on in this world today, in homes today, in lives today, in our own corrupted brokenness. Done! Dealt with. Let me step out of the story for just a second and ask the question, Pastor Doug, why are you talking about all of this when this is supposed to be in a series about growing and changing in Christ? Because if we don't know where we came from, we don't know where we live now. And if we don't know where this is going, we don't understand where we live now. And the truth of the matter is we look ahead, there's hope. It's going to be dealt with. But that's not where we live right now. It's not heaven, right? It's not. This is not heaven, but it's going to come. We live in a spiritual war between these two bookends. And the one who is corrupted things and bringing corruption in, and we have been ourselves broken by our own choice, God's going to bring victory. And not only will God bring victory, but God has brought victory. We are not living in the in-between stuck. We are not here desperate and without hope. We have hope now. You can have victory in Christ. That doesn't mean you will never sin again. You will never be hurt again. But that means that you have hope in what it is. And that is based off an understanding of the past, banked on a future that's coming. And friend, if you don't have that banked on in the future, I'm just going to lovingly say as much as I can, you don't have hope today. If you think it's about money, I've been there. Straight up with you. If you think it's about success, I've been there. From my past. And I am just telling you. It doesn't fill the gap. It doesn't fill the gap. There is something far greater and far better And we come to Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, in the stand. Great white throne judgment. Before I read it, let me just summarize in light of kind of my pause there for a moment. Revelation 19. The resurrected, glorified, magnified Jesus Christ, the faithful and true warrior, rider, and avenger, enters the world scene and goes to war. The lamb who came is now the lion coming. He enters not as the lamb, he enters the lion, and the war is over before it even really begins. And you've got to understand, follow me with this. In these chapters, God is systematically and strategically dealing with the key players of redemptive history. And in this, we see what we saw in chapter 19 is the beast 
of Revelation is taken care of. The false prophet is taken care of. They are conquered and they are given correct judgment. Then the corrupt kings of the earth are dealt with. Who does that, who remains then? Satan, the unredeemed, and the redeemed. You come into chapter 20 after this sovereignly allowed time for Satan to be released to play his final wicked games. Satan is now dealt with and thrown into the lake of fire. Now who remains? The unredeemed and the redeemed. What do the next verses, who do they talk about? Answer, the unredeemed. Who is left? The redeemed. Chapter 21 and 22. You've got to see here that God is dealing with the key players of redemptive history in his movement here. And now we come to the great white throne judgment and the focus is upon the unredeemed. Verse 11, then I saw a great white throne and him. And him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades, the realm of the dead, gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name, here's the key part of what's going on. If anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he, she was thrown into the lake of fire. I do not get a thrill out of preaching this stuff. God help me. What do we see? We see a throne. We see a throne in verse 11. It's a great mega throne. Is it size? Is it mega in magnitude? Probably both. You just have this clear idea that there is this great mega throne and it's white, it's without blemish, it's holy, it's pure, it's righteous. It's a throne. And then you have a hymn and he's sitting, he's reigning, he's ruling. He's not nervous. You clearly have almost like a courtroom scene here. By the way, biblically, God the Father and the Son share the throne. We see in Revelation chapter 5, the Father is uniquely in view on the throne. We see that in other passages in Scripture as well. And yet you have these uh, pointings of John 5 and Acts 10 and 2 Timothy 4, where Jesus is uniquely seated as the judge of unredeemed humanity, which so makes sense. The one who created all things, Colossians chapter 1, Jesus Christ, is the one who came to die and rose from the dead, bringing victory, making it available with the invite to all, is the one who is going to judge humanity. The one who created it is now judging it. He is the rightful judge with what's going on. Oh, by the way, and in his presence, all earth and sky fled away. It's like sucked out of the room. Because of sin, earth is corrupt. Because of sin, the, the universe is corrupt, we could say. And, and it's like all taken out. By the way, we're going to find out that a new heaven and a new earth come on the scene. 
But in this moment, in the throne, all diversions are gone. And the dead are standing before the throne. Hey, you know that saying, you can run, but you can't hide? Hey, this is a moment you can't run and you can't hide. There is nothing to divert your attention. There is nothing to blame it on, Adam, Eve. There's nothing to go him, her, it, that. No, it's all gone. It's just a throne and a him and the dead standing before the throne. And remember, the beast has been dealt with. The false prophet has been dealt with. The kings of the earth are gone. Satan is gone. The earth and the skies are gone. There is nowhere to hide. And who is standing here? Some say both the redeemed and the unredeemed. I think it happens to be just the unredeemed, but either way, the focus of the text is dealing with the unredeemed because that's where it goes. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he, she was thrown into the, the, the lake of fire. That's the unredeemed. And note, there are books and there's a book. The recorded facts are put before the judge and the day of reckoning is hand. Uh, this is so the scene of Daniel 7, 10. Uh, the court convened and the books were open. This is that moment that is taking place where we have this separation, this clarification of the unredeemed and the redeemed. And the books, I'll call them the divine records of human deeds, the irrefutable evidence of the loyalty of heart. Hey, understand this, your works do not earn salvation, but your works are the fruit that point to your root. You can fake the fruit. But the reality is that the true fruit points to the true root. And here, the, the books of the fruit are open. Mark chapter 4, in the four soils. And then James chapter 2, faith without works is dead. A person is justified by works, not by faith alone. The two fit. By the way, that fits within the whole idea of growing and changing. Our, why should we be growing and changing in Christ? Because how we live proves the root. And then the book. We've had the divine records of human deeds are brought to bear on each. And then the singular, the separate book. I'll call it the divine registry of citizens. The books are open and the book tells the story. That tell the story and that the book confirms the citizenry. And non-citizenry results in thrown into the lake of fire. And that guts me. And they come to the end of Revelation 20 and what do you have? You have the beast and the false prophet, they are judged and dealt with. You have the corrupt kings of the earth are judged and dealt with. You have Satan is judged and dealt with. The corrupt earth and the heavens have fleed. And the unredeemed those who did not respond to the invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Are thrown into the lake of fire. Do you see what's happening here? 
God is systematically and strategically dealing with the players. And the last players that are left are the redeemed next Sunday. But in this moment of it all, oh friend, I will tell you, if I could validate that there is no hell, I would. If I could validate that after death, it's just annihilationism, you die and you're done and out, I would. If I could validate that after death, it's universalism and everyone is saved, I would. I so would. I'm a people person. I love people. Why would I want anything different? If I could validate that there is no such time to stand before God and that this is just some kind of figurative Aesop's fable just to inspire you to be moral, I would. But I can't. Because none of those are true. So I lovingly say, when we look ahead, there is death and there is a time to stand. Next Sunday is going to be happier. I promise. If you are redeemed, and I mean that seriously, has there been a time where you've responded to the invitation that has been sent out by the one who died for you and rose from the grave? Because he has not applied automatically to you what he has done. He has made it available to you. And that is your choice from our viewpoint. Have you? And if you have, do you see what God is doing here? God is dealing with things. And there is hope in that. There is a a sadness in it all, but yet there is a hope in it all. Because that victory is, yes, there is a victory in the future, but there is a present victory that takes place now. And that doesn't mean that life will be simple and happy and full of, uh, uh, you know, Twinkies and fuzzy bunnies every day. But it helps us to understand where we live and what's going on and knowing that God will take care of it and that same God that will wrap it all up and take care of it all, he is the same one that died for you and I and makes his work available to you and I. Oh, do you know him? I'm going to ask if after the end of the service, if a few uh, small group leaders would just come and be available up front. Would you do that? A few small group leaders, would you just come be available up front? And if anyone wants to come up and just go, hey, can you talk to me a little bit more? Because I don't know that I know that I know. Listen, I'm not a hellfire and brimstone guy. I'm a preach the text guy. And you come to a text like this, and I'm telling you, it should wake us up. Otherwise, we're in trouble. Lord, thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you have done. Thank you for what you are going to do. And as we are spending these times together looking back and looking forward, I pray that we are growing in our understanding of who you are and how you work and when you work and how it's all working and where we live now. 
No, God, I pray for the person. Maybe the person in this room right now that is just, there's just something instilling in them where they don't know that they know that they know. Oh, God, I pray that they would get with someone. They would come up and talk with someone who loves them and would just love to sit down with them and share what God has done and what God has made available and that they would be RSVP because of you. And not just with a prayer, but with their life. Father, I pray for those who are redeemed and in Christ and have received Christ as their Savior. God, might we just not blow past this, but might this sink in because there are people on the west side of Indianapolis in need of the hope of the gospel. And there are people in this room that need the hope of the gospel. Father, I pray that the fact of who you are and who you will be and what you will do, it matters in our understanding of who you are and what you do today. It matters. Our lives matters. This day matters. What we do, it matters. Help us get outside of our little tiny perspective. Thank you for who you are and your grace to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.